0: My guest today is Professor Henry Yin, who's Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience at Duke University. His lab studies, Neural Mechanisms Underlying Goal Director Actions. Welcome, Henry.
1: Hi, Gil, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, so thanks for doing this. So I want to start with uh, one, of, uh, one of your papers from 2015, Restoring Purpose in Behavior. Uh, in which you say that the dominant paradigm in the study of behavior today is a linear causation paradigm. This paradigm, you say, inspired by classical physics, assumes that causes precede effects, uh, that the behavior of organisms is caused by antecedent events inside and outside the organism, and that future states such as goals and purposes, cannot possibly cause behavior. Yeah, so th- th- this sounds very familiar, <laughs> Henry, mm-hmm. uh, not only in physics, um, and it's, uh, I'll talk to you a little bit about uh, a similar thing going on in corporate finance, business decision making, and so on, uh, but, but I want to get to neuroscience uh, first, and so so it, it seems like we have had this, this idea, right, sort of an input-output mechanism, and that's how things work in the brain.
1: Yes, uh, I believe that's been the dominant assumption in neuroscience as well. Um, It's really a legacy of the reflex art tradition. And in neuroscience itself, um, I would say that one of the most influential people, early uh, neuroscientists was um, Sherrington, who really pioneered the study of this kind of input-output analysis using simplified or reduced uh, so-called preparations on um, which he removed the influence of the brain and looked at reflexi- uh, reflexive mechanism mechanisms in dogs. Um, so yeah, I, I think these days most neuroscientists probably don't believe that they're operating under the assumption of the sort of input-output or stimulus-response uh, mechanism. but in reality, I would argue that, in fact, they, you know, they pretty much follow the same paradigm. Yeah.
0: So, you know, I always wondered, Henry. You know, some of the work that I do in in artificial intelligence and computer science world, mm-hmm. um, we, uh, I think, we have it completely wrong. So so, that, so, so we have the digital computers. We have this deep learning neural networks that is fundamentally digital. Mm-hmm. But uh, we, don't, we don't really have, I, I don't think the brain works anything like that, right?
1: Yeah, um, exactly. In fact, you know, the Turing machine is a good example of an input-output uh, system. Um, and it's really the opposite of um, what I regard as the, you know, the, the, the control organization or negative feedback control loop that is the basic building block of living organisms so um you know so digital computers are in my opinion anti-biological um and but that's not to say that they cannot be used to model certain aspects of biological function Um, i think they're actually very powerful machines that can be used for a lot of things
0: yeah. So, so from a biological perspective, though, there are multiple issues. So one of the things that you really look at in this paper is this linear causation. Um, and when we look at behavior, sort of the the outcomes of a biological system, it doesn't appear to be something that takes in data, processes it, and, and puts out the behavior, right? It's, it's much more, it's different from that.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think the, the main problem is the verbal analysis is often misleading. And in this case, I think the, the, you know, the system is operating um, according to what I would call circular causation. And there's nothing mysterious about that. It's really the emergent property of uh, simultaneous processes happening in the closed loop yeah. system where the, you know, you do have the input side, the the afferent side, which, you know, the the sensory input is producing effects on the output, right? But at the same time, the output is also affecting the input. And in this kind of system, um, you can't describe the processes in a serial manner. So you can't just say for the other side to, to you know, to, to do things first, right? So they don't take turns, but in fact, you have uh, two systems equations that are essentially you know describing simultaneous processes, and with this kind of system, um, linear causation just breaks down, and, and th- this is very important to understand because at the microscopic level, if you if you take apart, you know if you if you basically uh, cut the feedback. And if you just um, take one component of the system at a time in isolation, it is an input-output device, right? Yeah. So the, 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 the input-output um, um, properties are really the same in this kind of isolated component. However, if you put it together and the whole system is working as a whole, you don't have this kind of linear causation mechanism anymore. In fact, it's replaced with new properties. In fact, these properties are uh, often uh, counterintuitive, I would argue. So I think that's essentially what's happening. But you know verbal analysis is so misleading because people often say, this is also the basis for the classic sort of reflex chain analysis where you you, you know you have stimulus, eliciting response, which in turn, you know, produces um, more stimulus, which, you know, so this would just go on, stimulus response, response stimulus. And this is actually, you know, the basis for a lot of um, uh, influential work in computer science as well, uh, in reinforcement learning, for example. Yeah, so, you
0: know, the, the engineering and physics bias, um, I think has been, you know, it, it sort of looks at optimization of um, simpler systems, right? So, you know, we can, we can observe inputs, we can observe outputs and we say, let's optimize the heck out of that. Um, but what you're seeing is that when, when you look at a system that uses many, many components, they interact. They simultaneously interact in some uh, in in some cases, and it's not only that there is a feedback mechanism, right? So it, it is not that the output is resulting in the outcome. The output is going back somewhere else <laughs> to to create some inputs, and it goes on like that.
1: Yes, and and um, you're absolutely right. Um, the I think the key here is um, emergent property, right? Um, And I think the classic uh, engineering or physics perspective is, yeah, you take a simple system, you try to understand uh, everything about this kind of system. And if you're designing or building a system like this, you would basically try to optimize. Um, But I think in biological organisms, you're not really like that um, you, you, in other words you're not taking the perspective of the creator uh, you know like a God's view uh, of things um, but instead um, you know of course we have evolution uh, things are selected based on how how effective they are right so um, I, I don't think the engineering perspective um, is helpful. Um, in understanding biological control systems. In fact, I think it's actually responsible for most of the misunderstanding that we have about how biological systems control using feedback. Uh, because, For example, in modern control theory, it's all about optimizing things. And it's really a, a little different from classical control theory when you know, things before the digital revolution, things were quite primitive and and people had to use, had to rely on analog computing and very um, sort of, by modern standards, um, um, uh, low quality parts, low quality components, less reliable components. And they had to make these things work. Um, But in, in a way, just by chance, Real biological organisms because their components are not so reliable. I think that's the whole challenge. The challenge is to produce very reliable behavior using unreliable parts. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So that's really interesting. So, uh, as you say, uh, digital computers are useful tools uh, to model certain things. But I think that the path that we went down is, uh, is probably incorrect that we we take that tool and we say, you know, we could potentially model this complex organism that we carry, um, the, the brain, but, but, but there's really no reason to think that actually right i mean so we have a tool nobody thinks we can you know take a slide rule and model the brain with that right uh, but we do believe now in many uh many uh instances that the digital computer uh, and there is a lot of work being done in quantum computing now all of those things will ultimately model the brain It can create a human brain with those things and that that seems completely incorrect right
1: yeah I agree I think <clears throat> uh, you know I think it's obviously incorrect right I think a good analogy would be for example we don't really understand uh, animal locomotion but you know cars are actually much more powerful in the way um, you know as as means of transportation so we don't really ride horses anymore um, <laughs> And because we have wheels, we have you know cars and automobiles and highways. And so in a way, that's much more powerful technology if you just want to go from point A to point B. Um, but that doesn't mean that just because we understand wheels, we understand how animals move, which is actually a much more difficult problem, you see. And uh, pretending that just because um, digital computers can compute, using, uh, you know, um, sort of symbolic processing, Uh, you know, you can add or you can do um, complex mathematical calculations using digital computers, um, which humans can barely do. That doesn't mean that the the, the actual processing, uh, processing that's um, um, required is um, similar at all, right? So yeah, I think it's it's been a huge um misunderstanding and and a very misleading analogy. but you know maybe it's it's inevitable because uh, it's been the human tendency to use the dominant technological advance of the age as the you know the the analogy for the human mind or for how 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 our bodies work. So I think that that has historically been the trend. Uh, yep. You know, people used to use the clock or some kind of hydraulic, you know, to describe yep. biological processes, but now it's all about digital, um, digital computing, um, information processing, and and I would argue that these things have nothing to do with biology. Um, yeah. But they're really dominant, and and it's, it's quite unfortunate. Yeah, um,
0: Henry, as you know, there are a lot of people waiting for that singularity when that uh, machine is going to come out of the garage and behave like the human and do everything, uh, everything like the human. Uh, well,
1: you know, I would argue that I'm, I'm not ruling out that possibility. But uh, yeah. you no know, such machines will not use digital computing. Um, yeah, in my opinion, or they will not rely on it. I mean, they could use it. You know, um, like, uh, you know, of course, like everybody uses a smartphone. These days, it's very helpful. But that, that doesn't yeah. that's not who we are. Right? So
0: yeah, uh, so, so you, you say here in the paper, the chief difference between the behavior of the living behavior of living organisms, and that of non-living things, is the presence of control. So, what do you mean by that?
1: Um, so, so I would define control as simply to um, to reach to keep a sensed variable. Um, at a certain value or to reach that value. Um, So uh, a very simple example is um, obviously body temperature and and we know that in the human body, it's homeostatic. Uh, We have sensors for temperature and more importantly, we have, um, I believe, internal representations, innate settings for our body temperature Um, And exactly how the temperature is controlled is currently unknown, but we have some clues. We know that probably uh, innate neural settings are responsible for um, sort of representing the should be value, the um, so-called set points uh, for body temperature and neural uh, mechanisms are involved in maintaining that body temperature so so that's just one simple example but of course um most variables are not homeostatic like that so most variables are um changing all the time um they're fluctuating depending on our needs and um yeah so that's but the key is you know for for that kind of control to put um to to occur, you must have some kind of negative feedback organization in which the output, variable output is produced, and through some kind of feedback function in the environment, um, able to reduce the error. So in other words, the error signal is self reducing somehow. Um, But that, you know, of course, that's not always possible. In other words, control is not always possible. But of course, in in uh, living organisms, it does happen all the time. Hmm.
0: Yeah. So, so to understand this correctly, Henry. So, so, so you have inputs, and you create an output. Uh, but it's not the end of the story. You, you, you have some sort of a controller that looks at the expectation of the output and what was produced. And as you say, there is environmental. Um, um effect on those those outputs too so most likely outcome is that you have an error from the expectation and then you have to feed that error errors back right to to get the right right
1: outcome is that do I understand it correctly <clears throat> yeah essentially um I believe what you're controlling are are the input signals um so the, some kind of internal representation of um you know external physical states um, but you can have very complex representations and um the reference states represent the desired uh states right so not expectations but really how you to be and uh, the discrepancy is so-called the error signal um and, and that's being used to generate outputs, uh, but that this kind of model is quite complicated just because it's um, organized in a very complex hierarchy, and that reflects um, really the neural, the biological hierarchy. Uh, as you know, the, the nervous system is actually uh, organized in a hierarchical fashion, right? So um, so the key design feature here, which is actually quite different from what people see um, in engineering. So control engineers are not really familiar with this kind of design, um, even though they do have something similar. It's a hierarchy in which you have multiple levels. You have many levels. Um, each level um, really includes a number of parallel control systems okay and the higher level controllers adjust the reference settings of lower controllers. So in control engineering they do have something similar called you know cascade organization but in most cases they have uh, probably two levels but in the simplest living organism you would have you know probably, Four levels or something like that. Yeah, um, and that that is required, absolutely required for even elementary behavior. Um, and you know, the, the the interesting feature of this is that, with the exception of the lowest level effectors, essentially all of the um, control hierarchy is really just the nervous system. without exception. So um, I would say that 99% of the control that is achieved in any biological organism is achieved by the nervous system.
0: It still sounds sounds mathematical, though, uh, Henry. So, you know, it at least sounds like we can model it uh you know clearly you have a lot of different levels there you have um sort of a closed loop system you have you know multiple uh, multiple things in that hierarchy but it all sounds sort of mathematically modelable is that the case
1: yes yes it is um in fact not only can you just model it we can model we can build something like that um I think the thing to remember about this kind of hierarchy is uh, you cannot use conventional engineering methods to understand it analytically. Um, So you have to rely on modeling and simulations. Uh, You just it's just too complex to predict based on the properties of the parts. Um, So in order to understand what's going to happen, you actually have to have a good simulation, or just build the system. Um, and this is something that we have tried to do. And um, so I'm happy to say that the system, the kind of organization that you know I just described, does work in reality. and um so it is uh, why I would call it a working model. <clears throat> and 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 that's very important, right? To me, you, you you don't really understand a system well, unless you can model it. Um, and we're not talking about just mathematical modeling, because in a way, the math is too complex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this is very interesting for me, Henry. So uh, as I mentioned,
0: there is something analogous happening in in finance and business decision making. Where ninety-nine percent of corporate finance today is based on, you know, deterministic input-output um, process. and when you really, you know, sort of look at it, ultimately those things don't result in decisions in the organizational context. Uh, they they just make uh, talking about decisions easier. Uh, but you know, uh, I have always argued, uh, I wrote a book in two thousand and nine. It's called Decision Options, which is really looking at decisions uh, as an optimum control problem. So any decision that you make today has a sequence of decisions interrelated to that into the future, and you have to optimally control your future decisions before you can actually make the current decision uh, to be to be correct um we don't really do that in in businesses instead we just say we will use gut-based decisions so um so we have newtonian mechanics the quantum mechanics type thing going on in many fields and uh it's sort of a similar situation here in uh, in neuroscience i think
1: yeah um well i think i think the key is um the problem with a lot of current models in neuroscience is that they are not models that, that, um, that you can run. So in other words, they, you cannot use these models to generate any kind of real behavior. Yeah. For the most part they um, I don't know how to describe it. I mean, they're just sort of, um, um, I guess a simple heuristic or something like that. Um, yeah. they don't describe the system in sufficient detail um, for this. You know, for you to do any real simulation or or um, to build a robot. Um, and I think that's a real problem because um, in science you need basic standards. Otherwise, you can never know who's right. Um, <laughs> so I think. In this case, um, you know, I, I think our model could be wrong, but at least we can run it, right? So you can say, well, if if you have a better model, then it, your model should be able to um, to produce better behavior, behavior that's more similar, right? So, so I think that's that's a very important point, and and traditional models really don't do that. Um, and, and i think that's one of the reasons for the current sort of crisis in neuroscience because there are many models so there are many theories but for the most part you know they're not <clears throat> they're not detailed enough to make real predictions um and they can't you know you can't run them yeah
0: i mean the, the beauty of what you're doing uh, is that so, so ultimately you can test this right so if you if you say you have a, a different way to model this, uh, you you would be able to predict the behavior of a system, and you can test it, uh, and you can refine it. And so, in that sense, I don't know if I if I understand this correctly, Henry. You know, is it sort of the the status quo inertia, the status quo. Uh, sort of, um, I don't know what the right term is, but this is how we have always done it, and hence it should be true idea <laughs> that is that is holding us back. Well.
1: Uh, are you talking about the current practice? Um,
0: yeah, neuroscience? in neuroscience, and it's, so you know, obviously neuroscience is spilling mm-hmm. over into artificial intelligence and all of that, and all of them are moving in the direction that, as you say, is. It's not really usable uh, from, from uh, you cannot really run them. You cannot re-
1: really make any robust predictions from them. But, right. uh, and, and I think, yeah, yeah I agree. But, the problem is, you know, historically, of course, neuroscience started with the study of behavior, so at the systems level. Uh, in the beginning was based on, you know, clinical observations, what happens after brain damage, right? So if you damage this part of the brain, this happens. So you you would look at these symptoms to um, infer uh, what the function of various brain parts would be. And um, what happened was that, you know, this kind of approach ultimately was not very successful It led to a lot of debate, but no real consensus. And, um, and when you try to do lesions experimentally in the animals, you have the same problem because the effects are very, um, complex, uh, Mm -hmm. variable. And so in a way people never had too much success with these approaches. Um, even though they've been, um, they've been practicing it for centuries, right? So what happened yeah. in neuroscience is that um, for a while this kind of approach just didn't do much. And then suddenly you have a you know, major revolution in cellular and molecular neuroscience where people could really you know, start to understand what happens at the molecular level or cellular level Uh, They figured out how, you know, um, action potentials generated, for example. Um, And then the the sort of the focus um, shifted to, you know, these more molecular cellular processes and behavior is no longer sort of um, topic, right? So for a while, that was the case. And... um, And I think the problem with the the field of uh, systems and behavioral neuroscience, which is uh, once again becoming popular today, is really this lack of standards. um, Because everything is is really just kind of recycled old ideas. And um, what's worse, you can't really um, determine Who's correct because there's no, you know, uh, standard by which any kind of hypothesis can be measured. You know, it's unclear how some of these ideas can be falsified, for example, um, because they're not real models, right? Um, And I think the, the, you know, the most important problem is to um, generate models that are sufficiently detailed um, so that they can actually be testable. Yeah,
0: yeah. There is also, Henry, if I understand this correctly, there's an issue between uh, predicting outcomes of a system and the mechanics of that system. So, So we have gotten better and better from an engineering and physics perspective to really understand the mechanics and if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is that the mechanics is is an engineering mathematical physics problem, but it doesn't really do anything to system systems behavior. you know So in some sense, we forgot that's important.
1: Well, I, I think um, part of the problem is that if you excuse me, If you analyze any complex biological system, um, and if you really wanted to just zoom in and understand all the, you know, little parts, um, it gets very overwhelming. And um, in fact, I don't think you can really understand uh, how the system behaves based on such microscopic analysis of, you know. cellular and molecular mechanisms. Unfortunately, however, because that's the only field in which neuroscience has had much success, it is widely believed that this is how you should um, go about, you know, understanding the brain, that you really need to understand every synapse, every neuron, um, and, and how they interact functionally in order to understand Uh, neural circuit function or behavior, and I I don't think that's the case. In fact, um, I I don't even think it's ever possible to understand all these um, all these um, microscopic processes. Um, Again, you know, just remember that obviously Newton didn't how every leaf falls, right? So, So I think what we need, obviously, is just um, we need physical laws. Um, Of course, these laws are very different from Newtonian laws, but there's still there's still laws. There's still we need principles. Right. Yeah. Yeah,
0: it is. um, There is a fundamental difference between engineered, engineered and engineering systems and biological systems and you know we have been trying to make that bridge between the two using tools that we have invented but those tools don't seem to do a lot in the biological world if i understand this correctly
1: yeah i think one of the things that's sort of interesting is that the basic negative feedback um organization was discovered. The basic properties were discovered by control engineers. Um, But at the same time, they were also the first ones to misunderstand these properties. Um, And I think interesting to me because I believe the engineers had a very different perspective their goal is to design a system that they can use. And um, their goal is to basically inject some signal and make the system behave as they desire. Um, but they um, never think about the possibility that, that that a particular system could be autonomous. And, yeah. and, and I think that's uh, a major difference because they're just really worried about how to make the parts more reliable, how to make the system behave uh, more um, closely to what they want. right? Yeah. And, and uh, I think that kind of mentality, that kind of expectation is responsible for um, some of the problems in engineering. I would argue that you can improve engineering. Right. Um, But traditional engineering is certainly, um, uh, yeah, I I think it's certainly biased, um, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Um, We'll take a quick
0: break, uh, Henry. When we come back, we'll talk about your recent paper. Sure. Of creating a robot.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we're back, Henry. Uh, We were talking about the differences between physical systems and biological systems, uh, digital computing, and let's call it biological computing. Um, We have been been trying to make a bridge between the two, but it doesn't look like we have succeeded (laughs) really well there yet. Uh, And there may be good reasons for it because we are using tools that are very usable in the physical world but don't really model how biological systems work. And uh, you you have a recent paper achieving uh, natural behavior in a robot using neurally inspired hierarchical control in which you say terrestrial locomotion presents tremendous computational challenges on account of the enormous degrees of freedom in leg animals and the complex and unpredictable properties, the natural environment and the effectors, yet the nervous system can achieve locomotion with ease. Uh, You mentioned uh, in the previous previous, uh, session that uh, we have cars and they work really good, but they're not really doing locomotion. Locomotion is a very, very complex phenomenon that animals appear to do, including us, Really well, um, but uh, I, I see sometimes uh, Henry. I've seen some robots that are seem to be walking around pretty well, so it, it seems like we're making some some headway there. Um, so, so what's the status quo in this area?
1: Um, yeah, I would say that um, the field of robotics has sort of traditionally failed to solve locomotion. But in recent years, probably in the last 10 years in particular, there has been a lot of progress. Um, I would say that we know a couple of groups have been able to build robots with fairly realistic um, locomotion. Uh, now, in some cases, uh, we don't know exactly how it's done, um, and I would suspect that the approach is somewhat similar to um, what we described in our paper. Yeah, But, um, yeah, there, I, I would say that this is certainly an area in robotics in which, um, uh, you know, there's been significant progress.
0: Yeah, so, so obviously... Uh, a really usable robot would be able to walk around anywhere. So, it comes with uncertainty. It comes with the sort of the terrain features, and so so the real challenge here is how does the robot do it in in a sort of a unfamiliar environment, right? Mm-hmm. So, so how do how do you how do you
1: accomplish that? Yeah. So the the main point in our paper is that um, <clears throat> this problem can be solved simply using classic negative feedback control mm-hmm. uh, arranged in the hierarchy, and uh, this this kind of approach is, I believe, very different from the standard approach. Um, and I should mention that the key computation that's performed in our robot is um, basically a subtraction. Okay, so so that can be done using any kind of analog computers um, where circuits can be built to, to do the subtraction, right? And this is also realistic because in the brain we know that there are neural circuits that can easily implement this kind of comparison function. Now, this is quite different from approaches in which um, the, you know, you have a computer that's really predicting the consequences of, of, uh, of each movement. It is trying to predict the kind of possible disturbances from the environment. It is trying to calculate how much torque is required you know, for for each step, um, things like that. Uh, and I believe all that kind of computation is unnecessary if we simply have, you know, this kind of classic negative feedback control loop with internal reference states. Um, but the key is these internal reference states are adjusted by top-down signals from, you know, hierarchically higher levels um, and that, that's essentially the basic organization in our robot. And our robot is also um, unique in that um, it, it, we use very cheap parts. Yeah. So <laughs> we, we use cheap and sort of unreliable parts. Uh, I think the whole robot would cost maybe a few thousand dollars. Hmm. Um, And and remember, we're not engineers, so we we are not good at engineering. (laughs) You know, I think I'm actually proud of that fact because that actually shows um, that our our design is good, right? Because the the parts are certainly not good, and they're cheap as well. So, you know, if you compare this kind of um, robot with something that is far more, Expensive, where you know you might have hundreds of engineers um, spending millions and millions of dollars developing a locomotor, um, a, a robot that's capable of locomotion, and that that tells you you know something about the simplicity of our approach. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, um, I'm just thinking, Henry. That um, it seems to me that the the real difference is sort of the command and control center. So we have high expectations of our brain. <laughs> you know, uh, We think there is something, some really massive programs running there that is controlling it. And, and and everything that we do in engineering is sort of in that direction, right? If you think about autonomous vehicles, uh yeah. engineering systems are in that direction. If I understand this correctly, Henry, what you're saying is that there's a hierarchy of uh, feedback control systems in a a mechanism. And so if you arrange that in such a way that it can self-correct, it can measure and error correct in a systematic way, then you don't need a sort of a command and control brain to do it. it. Do I understand that?
1: yeah essentially um I, I believe that the the wisdom of this kind of system lies in the organization how they how the parts are connected to each other yeah. um, and it's not really uh, it does not lie in any kind of very centralized um, sort of command and control system as you described it so I think it, it's funny because you know in all the all the uh, Hollywood movies when you see these robots you, you get this sort of subjective view of the robots it's always you know like equations being processed and, and, and different variables being monitored and so forth um, and, and, and and yes I, I think that's basically the opposite of how a real organism uh, works uh, and I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding of, of, um, of our brain. To think that that's how it works, um, and and you're right, and we do have high expectations um, because obviously, you know, we are so smart, right? But I think, <laughs> but I think, <clears throat> I think the real intelligence is uh, is the in biology is really based on using extremely simple and well conserved mechanisms that. You know, we share with flies, with insects, even, yeah. um, and uh, using these basic parts to do um, great things, and uh, and the whole whole game is really just um, hierarchical organization. I believe, you know, properly organized. Yeah,
0: <clears throat> and the uh, energy consumption is another tantalizing um, clue why we are on the wrong track, right? Um,
1: Absolutely. So,
0: <laughs> so we, you know, we have this data centers, we have huge computers, you know, the last time I looked at the statistic, 10, 15% of the power production in the world is going into data centers. Um, and if you need that much data um, it's probably quite difficult to make intelligent decisions. You know? Uh, and so, so are we coming to a sort of a fork on the road, Henry, you know, are, are we beginning to understand that the mechanical computing that we have been, uh, attempting to pursue, Uh, Potentially useful, uh, as you say, in many, many contexts, but it has nothing to do with intelligence in any way.
1: Yeah, well, personally, Obvious. obvious. Of course, I understand that many people don't understand this. Um, (laughs) Now, I believe, yeah, if I have to predict, I believe um that that is the case what you just what you described is um is true i believe that in the near future people will probably start to realize that that's the case um in a way because you know computational power is there's gonna be some kind of asymptote right so um it's been growing and uh, um, and and certain things rely on computational power, and, and of course, energy consumption. Um, and, but but I think um, is a very important constraint here. And so the yeah. next time people try to like compare, you know, a human Go player with some kind of computer program, <laughs> you always have to consider uh, energy consumption. I think yeah. it would it would only be fair if you equate the energy consumption um, yeah
0: so um two thousand calories about twenty percent uh, consumed by the brain so we are we are doing all this stuff at 400 calories a day
1: yeah isn't that amazing um <laughs> yeah, and 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 of course it's important to understand also that <clears throat> And, and, and energy is, is perhaps the biggest problem in biology, right? That's yeah. what living organisms need. Um, <clears throat> so how to acquire and also conserve energy. Uh, that, that's a very important constraint in biology, which um, people have often neglected.
0: Yeah, so that that's interesting, Henry. So perhaps, Um, we didn't really put energy as a constraint on design or engineering design.
1: Um, because you have abundant energy uh, available.
0: And, uh, maybe the cost of energy wasn't, you know, really material in the grand Mm -hmm. scheme of things. So we got really lazy, you know, in some ways in deciding the systems. And it it has implications uh, where we are today, right? Um, anything that we do requires large amounts of energy, very large amounts of data. You know, uh, I don't know much about this Henry, but the communication channels in the brain is working at a few bits of communications. And uh, the brain seems to do pretty interesting things with it. Um, you know, it doesn't need the Amazon, um, Data center, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, to, to before it actually does anything. So, so there appears to be, uh, we have slipped down a path that is sort of lazy in some way, in my view.
1: Absolutely, I I I, um, I agree. I think um, to be blunt, I think much of modern science and engineering is intellectually lazy um, yeah. it's intellectually lazy because there is a very good foundation from yeah. you know previous work a lot of it from the 19th century right um, yeah. and um so people are just sort of relying on you know more computational power um and and there's not much original thinking uh going on um unfortunately so so that's why we are having all these problems but you know i'm hoping that people will eventually realize um as as you described it um you know these these current models are not at all similar to living organisms right so we, we need a very different approach and that's what we've been arguing in our papers
0: yeah I'm going to get in trouble by for saying this, Henry. But um, you know, I I, uh, I think you know. sort the of paper and pencil innovation is gone. Now we need a, a large hadron collider, <laughs> you know, uh, before we can innovate anything. Um, so so we need machines that cost tens of billions of dollars before we can think, uh, and, and that's a problematic path, I think.
1: Well, I I often use the sort of the Hollywood um, analogy here because if you look at, you know, uh, um, movies today, you know, you have all these summer blockbuster movies and it's the same issue because, you you know, you just have hundreds of uh, highly qualified professionals working on these movies and Usually it would cost you know $200 million to, to, to produce one movie. But the basic uh, you know, intellectual content is almost zero. Um, and, and this is modern science in, in many ways um, because people are relying on special effects. People are relying on production value. <laughs> Um, they're not relying on uh, something like a, a plot, you know a story. Um, <laughs> yeah. and that's very unfortunate but but you know I, I think obviously human beings can do better. but unfortunately, I think it's just the, the, the fact that we've been um, you know in, in science and engineering there's such a good foundation that people have really relied on past, Practices, and, and yeah. you know, instead of innovating,
0: <clears throat> right, right. So, so introduction, Henry. So, um, I know that you think a lot about these things. Um, as we discussed, uh, there appears to be different directions in terms of understanding the brain or applying uh, ideas uh, from the brain. So, where, where do you think, if you if you sort of look forward five to ten years? where do you think we'll end up um you know there's a lot of advances in artificial intelligence as they say uh but it is fundamentally mechanistic uh from my perspective so i see sort of a, a cap on that uh, i am clearly biased about this but um that is so, so where do you think it's going to go in five to ten years
1: um so I don't really have a problem with um, things being uh, what you call mechanistic I'm not sure exactly what that means but um, <laughs> but uh, I, you know obviously you you, you don't agree with uh, some of the popular approaches out there and yeah. I feel the same way um, yeah the It's hard to predict, right? Um, I would say that, um, given our own work, I would say that within 5 to 10 years, we should be able to build a fairly intelligent robot. What will be interesting is that the basic model is is, um, and does not require uh, significant computation. Um, so is that going to be at all similar to a human being? I don't know. I doubt it, but I think it will show the, the, um, the feasibility of a very different approach, um, to studying living organisms and, and, and the brain. So, you know, that's my hope. Uh, That's all I can predict because, you know, that's something that we are working on now. Um, And and I do think that in five to ten years, we will be able to understand the brain a lot better um, because I I believe this approach is very promising, combining, you know, experimental um, um, data, uh, using experimental data to guide model building, obviously. so I think this is a very useful approach, and in five to ten years, you know, I hope to have some success. But it, 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 as far as you know, what will happen in AI? Um, I, I don't know. I, I think it's hard to predict. It really depends on whether, in my opinion, whether people will actually listen. To- <laughs> yeah. So, so
0: that, that's sort of the fundamental difference, in my view, Henry. That. You say uh, you can you can build um, practical robots, but it, it's not going to take significant computation. Uh-huh. And so it, it's it's sort of a design difference in some way, which is
1: uh-huh.
0: uh, a lot of systems working together. There is uh, control uh, feedback mechanisms in the there's a hierarchical uh, sort of organization of the system. It's not like the brain is doing all of this um so that is sort of the fundamental difference in your approach right
1: yes and i would argue that the, the the important thing is there's a specific design and you can't really deviate from this this kind of design so it's not like any hierarchy will work specific hierarchy will work and not only that, even when you have this, you know, the the right anatomy, it doesn't mean that the system will work. You need the right, you know, synaptic weights and so on. So it's actually a very specific design, and it's one that we're trying to discover by doing experiments and by modeling. But you know, it, it is highly constrained. So it's not like anything will work. Um, but what will work. I believe, I'm actually quite confident about that, is a a remarkably simple organization Um, and and far simpler than, you know, what um, people currently assume because they believe, you know, that the brain must be able to compute all these things, even though, of course, I can't compute anything, right? I'm having trouble adding these days because, (laughs) you know, due to aging. So uh, I don't believe that my neurons are, you know, uh, subconsciously computing all these things that I can't compute at all, right? So so I think that's the distinction. Um, Maybe I'm just relying on common sense, but I I do think common sense is important. Yeah, excellent, yeah, this has been great,
0: Henry. Thanks so much for spending time with me.
1: Okay, thank you very much.
0: Thank you.